Section 17 of Selections of the History of the Franks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by B. Tootin. Selections of the History of the Franks by Gregory of Tours. Translated by Ernest Brehaut. Selections from the Eight Books of Miracles. Selections from the Eight Books of Miracles. Attitude towards Secular Learning. Preface, Book in Honor of the Martyrs. The priest Jerome, next to the Apostle Paul, the best teacher of the church, tells us that he was brought before the judgment seat of the internal judge and subjected to torture and severely punished because he was in the habit of reading Cicero's cleverness and Virgil's lies and that he said in the presence of the holy angels and the very ruler of all that he would never thereafter read these but would occupy himself in future only with such writings as would be judged worthy of god and suited to the edification of the church moreover the apostle paul says let us follow after things which make for peace and things whereby we may edify one another and elsewhere let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth but such as is good for edifying, that it may give grace to them that hear. Therefore we ought to follow after, to write, and to speak the things that edify the church of God, and by holy instruction bring weak minds to a knowledge of the perfect faith. And we ought not to relate lying tales, nor to pursue the wisdom of philosophers that is hateful to God, lest by God's judgment we fall under sentence of eternal death. Observance of the Lord's Day, Ibid, Chapter 15. In the territory of this city, Tours, at Langeais, a woman who lived there moistened flour on the Lord's Day and shaped a loaf, and drawing the coals aside, she covered it over with hot ashes to bake. When she did this, her right hand was miraculously set on fire and began to burn. She screamed and wept and hastened to the village church in which relics of the Blessed John are kept and she prayed and made a vow that on this day, sacred to the divine name, she would do no work, but only pray. The next night she made a candle as tall as herself. Then she spent the whole night in prayer, holding the candle in her hand all the time, and the flame went out, and she returned home safe and sound. Relics handed down in Gregory's family. Ibid, chapter 83. I shall now describe what was brought to pass through the relics which my father carried with him in former times. When Theodobert gave orders that sons of men in Auvergne should be taken as hostages, my father, at that time lately married, wished to be protected by relics of the saints, and he asked a certain bishop kindly to give him some, thinking he would be kept safe by such protection when absent on his distant journey. Then he enclosed the holy ashes in a gold case the shape of a peapod and placed them around his neck, but the man did not know the blessed names. He was accustomed to relate that he was saved by them from many dangers, for he bore witness that by their miraculous power he had often escaped attacks of highwaymen and dangers on rivers and the furies of civil war and thrusts of the sword. And I shall not fail to tell what I saw of these with my own eyes. After my father's death, my mother always wore these precious things on her person. Now the grain harvest had come, and great grain stacks were gathered at the threshing places. And in those days, when the threshing was going on, 
a cold spell came on, and seeing that Limagne has no forests, being all covered with crops, the threshers made themselves fire of straw, since there was nothing else to make a fire of. Meanwhile, all went away to eat, and behold, the fire gradually increased and began to spread slowly, straw by straw. Then the piles suddenly caught, with the south wind blowing. It was a great conflagration, and there began a shouting of men and shrieking of women and crying of children. Now this was happening on our own land. My mother, who wore these relics hanging on her neck, learned this and sprang from the table and lifted up the holy relics against the masses of flame, and all the fire went out in a moment, so that scarcely a spark of fire could be found among the burnt piles of straw, and it did no harm to the grain which it had just caught. Many years later, I received these relics from my mother, and when we were going from Burgundy to Auvergne, a great storm came upon us, and the sky flashed with many lightnings and roared with heavy crashes of thunder. Then I drew the blessed relics from my bosom and raised my hand against the cloud. It immediately divided into two parts and passed on the right and left and did no harm to us or anyone else thereafter. But being a young man of ardent temperament, I began to be puffed up with vainglory and to think silently that this had been granted not so much to the merits of the saints as to me personally, and I openly boasted to my comrades on the journey that I had merited by my blamelessness what God had bestowed. At once my horse suddenly shied beneath me and dashed me to the ground, and I was so severely shaken up by the fall I could hardly get up. I perceived that this had come of vanity, and it was enough to put me on guard thenceforth against being moved by the spur of vainglory. For whenever it happened after that that I had the merit to behold any of the miracles of the saints, I loudly proclaimed that they were wrought by God's gift through faith in the saints. Comparative Merit of Gregory and His Mother Ibid, Chapter 85 On this matter I recall what I heard told in my youth. It was the day of the suffering of the great martyr Polycarp, and his festival was being observed at Riom, a village of Auvergne. The reading of the martyrdom had been finished, and the other readings which the priestly canon requires, and the time came for offering the sacrifice. The deacon, having received the tower in which the mystery of the Lord's body was contained, started with it to the door, and when he entered the church to place it on the altar, it slipped from his hand and floated along in the air, and thus came to the altar, and the deacon was never able to lay hands on it. And I believe this happened for no other reason than that he was defiled in his conscience, for it was often told that he had committed adultery. It was granted only to one priest and three women, of whom my mother was one, to see this. The rest did not see it. I was present, I confess, at this festival at the time, but I had not the merit to see this miracle. A fly might be a demon. Ibid, chapter 103. Panicius, a priest of Poitou, when sitting at dinner with some friends he had invited, asked for a drink. When it was served, a very troublesome fly kept flying about the cup and trying to soil it. The priest waved it off with his hand a number of times, but it would go off a little and then try to get back, and he perceived that it was a crafty device of the enemy. He changed the cup to his left hand and made a cross with his right. Then he divided the liquor in the cup into four parts and lifted it up high and poured it on the ground. 
for it was very plain that it was a device of the enemy. Miracles in Gregory's Family Book of the Miracles of St. Julian, Chapter 23 and 24 At that time my father's brother Gallus was Bishop of Auvergne, and I do not think I should fail to tell how he was aided in his youth by a miracle of the saint. Now I have often described the ruin King Theodoric brought upon Auvergne, when none of their property was left to either old or young, except the bare land which the barbarians were unable to carry off. In those days, then, my uncle of glorious memory, who afterwards, as I have told, governed the church of Auvergne in the high office of bishop, was a ward, and his property was so plundered by the soldiers that there was nothing at all left that was available, and he himself used to often to go on foot with only one attendant to the village of Briode. It happened once, when he was trudging along on this journey, that he took his shoes off on account of the heat, and as he walked in his bare feet, he stepped on a sharp thorn. This by chance had been cut, but was still lying on the ground, and was concealed point upward in the green grass. It entered his foot and went clear through, and then broke off and could not be drawn out. The blood ran in streams, and as he could not walk, he begged the blessed martyr's aid, and after the pain had grown a little less, he went on his way limping. But the third night the wound began to gather, and there was great pain. Then he turned to the source from which he had already obtained help, and threw himself down before the glorious tomb. When the watch was finished, he returned to bed and was overcome by sleep while awaiting the miraculous help of the martyr. On arising later, he felt no pain, and examining his foot, he could not see the thorn which had entered it, and he perceived it had been drawn from his foot. He looked carefully for it and found it in his bed, and saw with wonder how it had come out. When bishop, he used to exhibit the place where a great hollow was still to be seen, and to testify that this had been a miracle of the blessed martyr. A long time after, when the festival of the blessed martyr came, my father, with all his household, made haste to attend the joyful celebration. As we were on the way, my older brother Peter was seized by a fever and became so ill that he could not move about or take food. We journeyed on in great grief, and it was doubtful whether he would recover or die. In this state of distress, we at length arrived. We entered the church and worshipped at the holy martyr's tomb. The sick boy cast himself down on the pavement praying for a cure by the glorious martyr. Finishing his prayer, he returned to his lodging, and the fever went down a little. When night came, we hastened to keep watch, and he asked to be carried along, and lying before the tomb, he begged the martyr's favor all night long. When the watch was over, he asked them to gather dust from the blessed tomb and give it to him in a drink and hang it about his neck. This was done, and the heat of the fever went down, so that on the very same day he took food without suffering and walked about wherever his fancy took him. Gregory's Modesty Preface, The Four Books on the Miracles of St. Martin The miracles which the Lord our God deigned to work through the blessed Martin, his bishop, when living in the body, he still deigns to confirm daily in order to strengthen the faith of believers. He who worked miracles through him when he was in the world now honors his tomb with miracles, and he who at that time sent him to save the perishing heathen now bestows through him blessings on the Christians. Therefore let no one have doubt about the miracles worked in former time, 
when he sees the bounty of the present wonders bestowed, when he looks upon the lame being raised up, the blind receiving sight, demons being driven out, and every other kind of disease being cured through his healing power. As for me, I will establish belief in the book written about his life by earlier writers by relating for posterity at God's command his present-day miracles as far as I can recall them. This I would not presume to do if I had not been born twice or thrice in a vision. I call all powerful God to witness that I once saw in a dream at midday many who were crippled and overwhelmed by various diseases being cured in St. Martin's Church. And I saw this in the presence of my mother, who said to me, Why are you so sluggish about writing of these things that you see? I replied, You know well enough that I am unskilled in letters, and that, simple and untrained as I am, I would not dare to describe such wonderful miracles. I wish Severus or Paulinus were alive, or that Fortunatus at the least were here to describe them. I have no skill for such a task, and I should be blamed if I undertook it. But she said, Don't you know that nowadays, on account of the people's ignorance, one who speaks as you can is more clearly understood? Therefore, do not hesitate or delay, for you will be guilty if you pass this over in silence. So I wished to follow her advice, and was doubly tortured with grief and fear, grief that miracles as great as were done under our predecessors should not be recorded, fear of undertaking so noble a task, ignorant as I am. However, led on by the hope of divine mercy, I am going to attempt the task thus urged upon me. For as I suppose, he who produced water in the desert from a dry rock and cooled the thirsty people is able to set these matters forth in my words, and it will be surely proved that he has again opened the ass's mouth if he deigns to open my lips and make known those miracles through an untaught person like me. But why should I fear my ignorance when the Lord our God and Redeemer chose not orators but fishermen, not philosophers but countrymen, to destroy the vanity of worldly wisdom? I have confidence, then, thanks to your prayers, that even if my rude speech cannot adorn the page, the great bishop will give its fame by his glorious miracles. Remarkable Exercise of Virtue by St. Martin Ibid, Book 1, Chapter 20 Since I have told two or three times how miracles were performed and dangers averted by the mere invocation of the glorious name, I shall now describe how the blessed bishop was called upon and brought help to one who was falling headlong to death. Ammonius, an officer of the Holy Church, arose from dinner somewhat under the influence of wine, and, the enemy giving him a push, he fell headlong over a lofty cliff that bordered the road. There was a drop of about two hundred feet. While he was whirling about as he fell headlong and was flying down without wings, he kept crying for aid from St. Martin at every instant of his fall. Then he felt as if he were tossed from a saddle by someone, and he landed among the trees that were in the valley. And thus coming down slowly, limb by limb, he reached the ground without danger of death. However, that the plotter's undertaking might not seem to have been completely in vain, he suffered a slight injury in one foot. But he went to the glorious master's church and prayed, and was relieved of all pain. Miracles Worked on Gregory Ibid, Book 1, Chapter 32 and 33 
Having related the miracles performed for others, I shall tell what the miraculous power of this protector has done for my unworthy self. In the hundred and sixtieth year after that holy and praiseworthy man, the blessed Bishop Martin, was taken up to heaven, when the holy Bishop Euphronius was governing the church of Tours in his seventh year, and in the second year of the glorious King Sigebert, I became ill with malignant pimples and fever, and being unable to eat or drink, I was reduced to such a state that I lost all hope of the present life and thought of nothing but of the details of my burial. For death was constantly raging at me, eager to separate my soul from my body. Then when I was almost dead, I called on the name of the blessed champion, Martin, and made some improvement, and began slowly and painfully to prepare for my journey. For I had made my mind up that I ought to visit his venerable tomb. And my desire was so great that I did not even wish to live if I was to be delayed in going. Although I had scarcely escaped from a dangerous fever, I began to be on fire again with the fever of desire. And so, although not yet strong, I hastened to go with my people. After two or three stages on entering the forest, I fell ill of the fever again and was in such a serious condition that they all said I was dying. Then my friends came to me and saw I was very weak and said, let us return home. And if God wishes to call you, you will die in your own home. And if you recover, you will make this journey you evolve more easily. For it is better to return home than to die in the wilderness. On hearing this, I wept bitterly and bewailed my ill luck and said, I adjure you by all powerful God and the day of judgment which all fear who have to make answer there that you agree to my request. Don't give up the journey we have begun. And if I have merit to see the Holy Martin's Church, I shall thank God. But if not, carry my dead body there and bury it, because I am determined not to return home if I have not the merit to appear at his tomb. Then we all wept together and went on, and guarded by the glorious Master, we arrived at his church. The third night after arriving at the Holy Church, we planned to keep watch and did so. In the morning, when the bell for matins rang, we returned to our lodging and going to bed, we slept until nearly the second hour. Then I woke up and found that all weakness and pain were gone and I had recovered my former health. And I gladly called my usual attendant to wait on me. And I shall not forget to say that after 40 days, that one was the first on which I took pleasure in drinking wine since because of my illness, I had detested it until then. Ibid, Book 2, Chapter 1 In the second month after my ordination, when I was at a country place, I suffered from dysentery and high fever, and began to be so ill that I altogether despaired of living. Everything that I could eat was always vomited before it had been digested, and I loathed food, and when my stomach had no more strength as a result of no food, the fever was the only thing that gave me strength. I could in no way take anything substantial and strengthening. I had severe pain, too, that darted all through my stomach and went down into my bowels, exhausting me by its pain no less than the fever had done. And when I was in such a condition that no hope of life was left, and everything was being made ready for my death, and the physician's medicine could do nothing for one whom death had laid claim to, I was in despair, and called the chief physician, Armentarius, and said to him, You have used every trick of your profession. You have tried the power of all your remedies, but secular means are of no avail to the perishing. 
there is only one thing left for me to do. I will show you a great remedy. Let them bring dust from the Holy Master's tomb and make a potion for me from it. And if this does not cure me, every means of escape is lost. Then the deacon was sent to the tomb of the Holy Bishop just mentioned, and he brought the sacred dust and put it in water and gave me a drink of it. When I had drunk, soon all the pain was gone, and I received health from the tomb. And the benefit was so immediate that although this happened in the third hour, I became quite well and went to dinner that very day at the sixth hour. Ibid, Book 3, Preface and Chapter 1 Whenever a headache comes on, or a throbbing in the temples, or a dullness of hearing, or a dimness of sight, or a pain attacks some other part, I am cured at once when I have touched the affected part on the tomb or the curtain hanging before it, and I wonder within myself that at the very touch the pain is immediately gone. I shall place first in this book a miracle that I experienced recently. We were sitting at dinner after a fast and eating when a fish was served. The sign of the cross of the Lord was made over it, but as we ate, a bone from this very fish stuck in my throat most painfully. It caused me great distress, for the point was fastened in my throat and its length blocked the passage. It prevented my speaking and kept the saliva which comes frequently from the palate from passing. On the third day, when I could get rid of it neither by coughing or hawking, I resorted to my usual resource. I went to the tomb and prostrated myself on the pavement and wept abundantly and groaned and begged the confessor's aid. Then I rose and touched the full length of my throat and all my head with the curtain. I was immediately cured, and before leaving the holy threshold, I was rid of all uneasiness. What became of the unlucky bone, I do not know. I did not cough it up, nor feel it go down into my stomach. One thing only I know, that I so quickly perceived that I was cured, that I thought that someone had put in his hand and pulled out the bone that hurt my throat. A Phantom Attacks a Woman, Ibid, Book 3, Chapter 37. At this time, when a certain woman remained alone at the loom when the others had gone, a most frightful phantom appeared as she sat and laid hold of the woman and began to drag her off. She screamed and wept since she saw there was no one to help, but still tried to make a courageous resistance. After two or three hours, the other women returned and found her lying on the ground, half dead and unable to speak. Still she made signs with her hand, but they did not understand, and she continued speechless. The phantom which had appeared to her attacked so many persons in that house that they left it and went elsewhere. In two or three months' time, the woman came to the church and had the merit to recover her speech, and so she told with her own lips what she had endured. Procedure in Case of a Miracle, Ibid, Book 3, Chapter 45. The facts that I relate ought not to seem to anyone unworthy of belief, because the names of individuals are not mentioned in the account. The cause of it is this, when they are restored to health by the saint of God, they leave immediately, and they sometimes go so secretly that, so to speak, they are noticed by no one. And when the report has spread that a miracle has been done by the blessed bishop, I summon those who have charge of the church and inquire into what happened. But I do not always learn the names from them. 
I generally tell by name of those I have been able to see or examine personally. Minor Miracles Worked on Gregory Ibid, Book 4, Chapter 2 At one time my tongue became uncomfortably swelled up, so that when I wished to speak it usually made me stutter, which was somewhat unseemly. I went to the saint's tomb and drew my awkward tongue along the wooden lattice. The swelling went down at once, and I became well. It was a serious swelling, and filled the cavity where the palate is. Then three days later, my lip began to have a painful beating in it. I went again to the tomb to get help, and when I had touched my lip to the hanging curtain, the pulsation stopped at once. And I suppose this came from an overabundance of blood. Still trusting to the saint's power, I did not try to lessen the amount of blood, and this matter caused me no further trouble. Gregory's Uncle, St. Gall, The Lives of the Fathers, Chapter 6 St. Gall was a servant of God from his youth up, loving the Lord with his whole heart, and he loved what he knew to be beloved by God. His father was named Georgius, and his mother Leocadia, a descendant of Vectius Epigotus, who, as the history of Eusebius relates, was a martyr at Lyon. They belonged among the leading senators so that no family could be found in the Gauls better born or nobler. And although Gaul's father wished to ask for a certain senator's daughter for him, he took a single attendant and went to the monastery at Cournon, six miles from Clermont, and besought the abbot to consent to give him the tonsure. The abbot noticed the good sense and fine bearing of the youth and inquired his name, his family, and native place. He replied that he was called Gaul and was a citizen of Auvergne, a son of the senator Georgius. When the abbot learned that he belonged to one of the first families, he said, My son, what you wish is good, but you must first bring it to your father's attention, and if he gives you consent, I will do what you ask. Then the abbot sent messengers in regard to this matter to his father, asking what he wished to be done with the youth. The father was a little disappointed but said, He is my oldest son, and I therefore wished him to marry. But if the Lord deigns to receive him into his service, let his will rather than mine be done. And he added, Consent to the child's request, which he had made by God's inspiration. 2. The abbot, on receiving this message, made him a clerk. He was very chaste, and as if already old, he had no wicked desires. He refrained from a young man's mirth. He had a voice wonderfully sweet and melodious. He devoted himself constantly to reading. He took pleasure in fasting and was very abstemious. When the blessed Bishop Quintian came to this monastery and heard him sing, he did not allow him to stay there any longer, but took him to the city and, like the Heavenly Father, fed him on the sweetness of the Spirit. On his father's death, when his voice was improving day by day and he was a great favorite among the people, they reported this to King Theodoric, who at once sent for him and showed him such affection that he loved him more than his own son. He was loved by the queen with a similar love, not only for his beautiful voice, but also for his chastity. At that time, King Theodoric had taken many clerks from Auvergne, whom he ordered to serve God in the church at Treves, but he never allowed the blessed Gaul to be separated from him. So it came that when the king went to Cologne, he went with him. There was there a heathen temple full of various articles of worship, 
where the neighboring barbarians used to make offerings and stuff themselves with food and drink until they vomited. There also they worshipped images as God and carved limbs in wood, each one the limb in which he had suffered pain. When the holy Gaul heard of this, he hastened to the place with only one clerk when none of the benighted pagans was present and set it on fire. And they saw the smoke of the fire rolling up to the sky and searched for the one who had set it and found him and pursued him sword in hand. He fled and took refuge in the king's court. But when the king had learned from the pagans' threats what had been done, he pacified them with agreeable words and so calmed their furious rage. The blessed man would often weep in telling this story and say, Unhappy me that I did not stand my ground and let my life be ended in this affair. He was deacon at the time. 3. Later when the blessed Bishop Quintian passed from this world by God's command, the Holy Gaul was living in Clermont, and the people of the city assembled at the house of the priest Impetratus, Gaul's uncle on his mother's side, lamenting at the bishop's death and asking who should be appointed in his place. After long debate, they returned each to his own house. On their departure, the Holy Gaul called one of the clerks and said, the Holy Spirit rushing into him, What are these people muttering about? Why are they running to and fro? What are they debating? They are wasting their time, said he. I am going to be bishop. The Lord will deign to bestow this honor on me. Now when you hear that I am returning from the king's presence, take my predecessor's horse with the saddle on him and come and bring him to me. If you refuse to obey me, take care you are not sorry for it later. As he said this, he was lying on his bed. The clerk was angry at him and abused him and struck him on the side, breaking the bed at the same time, and went off in a rage. On his departure, the priest in Petratus said to the blessed Gaul, My son, hear my advice. Don't waste a minute, but go to the king and tell him what has happened here. And if the Lord inspires him to bestow this holy office on you, I shall give thanks to God. Otherwise, you can at least recommend yourself to the man who is appointed. He went and reported to the king what had happened. And the clerks of Clermont, with the choice of the foolish, went to the king with many gifts. Even then, that seed of iniquity had begun to germinate, that bishoprics were sold by kings and bought by the clerks. Then they heard from the king that they were going to have St. Gaul as bishop. He was ordained priest, and the king gave orders to invite the citizens to a feast at the expense of the treasury and to make merry over the promotion of Gaul, the future bishop. This was done. He was in the habit of telling that he had given no more for the office of bishop than a third of a gold piece which he had given to the cook who prepared the feast. Then the king appointed two bishops to accompany him to Clermont, and the clerk, Viventius by name, who had struck him on the side when he was in bed, hastened to meet the bishop according to his command, but not without great shame, and he presented himself and the horse which Gaul had ordered. When they had gone into the bath together, Gaul gently reproached him for the pain in his side which he had incurred from the contemptuous violence of the clerk, and he caused him great shame, not in a spirit of anger, however, but only delighting in a pious joke. After that, he was received into the city with much singing and was ordained bishop in his own church. End of section 17. Recording by B. Tootin.